Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Stacks. Today I'm going to be talking to Peter Stanfield. He's the author of two outstanding rock and roll books that you should all read. Pinups 1972, Third Generation Rock and Roll, and The Who, a band with built-in hate, from pop art to punk. These are really fascinating and in many ways groundbreaking books in that they dispense with the same stale old narratives about familiar subjects and provide a new, more thoughtful and realistic perspective. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. Well, you know, let's start talking about your book, 1972 Pinups First. I think you're uh, a few years older than me, but more or less the same generation and growing up in the UK. And I think we were experiencing and learning to understand the music scene through reading rock journalism, especially the weekly music papers like New Musical Express and Melody Maker and so on. But, you know, as, as a kid, Top of the Pops was my sort of weekly window into the world of pop music. But by the time I hit my teens, my growing obsession with music was being fed by the music papers. So in 1972, Pinups, you examine that era as it played out in the UK music press and some other journalism of the era. So can you talk about that? Um, yeah, so, yeah, I think I'm a couple of years older than you, at least. Um, I was born late, uh, 58, as Mott Hoople sang. And, um, you know, like you, uh, Top of the Pops was formative uh mum never had the pop radio on but so finding finding my way to, uh, to pop music through the music press was absolutely key uh, to where it all began for me um i you know i just i just wanted to kind of break into the codes of the new musical express i wanted to be able to do the crossword um you know and i just wanted to, to <laughs> be part of something or feel like i was part of something Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it was giving, you know, giving us a deeper understanding of music or at least giving us some kind of picture of it. And um, I think it, it was different in America. You know, people didn't experience it in the same way that they didn't have those weekly music papers, you know, and and because it's so vast, you know, it's it, things were happening more regionally, I think, over here. Yeah, I got I got a sense when you kind of cross referenced with um, magazines like Cream that they just they the, the 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 coverage seemed to be months after what was happening, what what was being covered in in um, in Britain, and um, so it, I mean I should imagine the experience was was just very very different uh, between between Britain and the states. And things just seemed to be changing every week. It was you know keeping up with. Uh, what was going on was a you know full time occupation. Never mind whatever you're doing at school. Exactly, yeah. So the book's focus is something you define as third generation rock and roll. So let's talk about that. I mean, what is the origin of that term, and and what does that definition encompass? Uh, it was um it was a part of the discovery of just kind of digging back into the press was it was this the way that this term was being thrown around um in in 1971 really it starts to starts to appear um and it appears really because of um interest in Alice Cooper who came over on a uh, a promotional trip they weren't playing a, any, any any gigs it was just a, 
Alice Cooper, the man, not Alice Cooper, the, the group. And he used uh, that term. And what he was, the way he was using it was to kind of big up both his group and, and um, against, well, the Stooges, as they were then. And um, he, he claimed that they were third generation rock and roll. And it was very clear what he was, what, what he was referring to. First, there was Elvis, Eddie Cochran, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard. And then there was the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Who. And now there was Alice Cooper and the Stooges. And um, the British music press and the underground press, Friends uh, uh, International Time as well, ran with this concept. And you could you could suddenly, where it hadn't appeared at all before, it suddenly became a kind of common phrase. And what, what I found fascinating was, was just how quickly it dropped out of the kind of lexicon of rock and roll. Um, but in 71, 72, it was the, the phrase that was used to describe what was going on. Um, I mean, there would be other kind of more derogatory ways of describing it. Um, but that, the, the third generation rock and roll really, really did seem to suggest to people at that point in time that uh, this is where the next phase was going to happen and just what it was going to look like. No one was quite certain, but it was going to be significant. <laughs> It was going to get interesting again. <laughs> so that was something that I think you know you you captured really well in your book and sort of explain that era in a new light because you know I think sort of latter day rock histories, especially from the UK perspective, they always sort of focus on the nineteen seventy six seventy seven punk rock explosion as the game changing moment, right? Like there was the sixties and there was this sort of wasteland in the first half of the seventies, which was either like rock dinosaurs or pretentious prog rock on one side or kitsch glam rock like Gary Glitter and Slade on the other and nothing of any real artistic value other than maybe Bowie but he was sort of an anomaly and operating in outer space you know not on a working class street level and then suddenly the Sex Pistols were swore on TV and the music scene changed overnight that year zero mentality but that wasn't really how it happened was it? No, I, don't, I mean, I, I, as I kind of um, researched and wrote the book, it came to seem to me that punk was an endpoint, not at the beginning. <laughs> and that yeah. sound, might sound really perverse, but everything that you could see being um, projected in third generation rock and roll um, uh, was just simply being replayed again by um, by the Clash and, and, the, and the Sex Pistols and, and, and the Damned. The, all of the gestures, all of the attitudes all of the kind of poses were already in place for them to uh, to pick up and um, throw back out there yeah i mean and, and as i remember i mean i was 14 when punk you know kind of broke but it seemed it didn't seem like a sudden thing necessarily it had been something that i've been sort of watching happen incrementally in the pages of the music papers you know for the last several years you know it was just something that was building and it finally kind of picked up a name and you know in sort of early 76 you sort of sort of started seeing the word punk rock and that kind of thing but it, it was definitely a, a more gradual explosion you know it was like a, a fuse that you know began way at the beginning of the 70s yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. It was a fuse, and 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 people were looking to light that fuse. I mean, that's what someone like Nick Kent or Charles Murray were uh, writers for Enemy and um, 
uh, and others from uh, Melody Maker and Sounds were, were were getting involved with. Yeah, it was it, you know they, they they wanted to set off a series of explosions. They wanted to see what would happen, <laughs> just like kids playing with fireworks, you know. And I'm not sure whether it was going to set the house on fire or not, but it didn't really matter anyway. It was always <laughs> going to be a good show. So um, yeah, so I, I mean, I, I so I, I do see sort of um, you know punk as that kind of last big hurrah of all of, of third generation rock and roll, def- most definitely. Yeah, I remember Billy Childish saying that in an interview many years ago. He, he said people always said that punk was the beginning of something new, but it was actually the end of something that came before. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly right. It really was. Yeah, it, ma- it makes, there's a kind of sense to it in in that if, 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 if you kind of go with the idea it was year zero, then um, what was going on before was a kind of recapturing of a, of a previous history, a history that um, that had been almost forgotten. And, and we're in the kind of 50th, 51st, uh, uh, anniversary of the, the Nuggets compilation came in '72, and um, that that was a kind of it's always seen as a kind of standout, as if somehow or other it came out of nowhere. But that too was part of a whole kind of process, a set of discussions that were going on amongst rock critics and, and, and musicians about the need to get back to something much more fundamental, much more primal, um, if you like, some you know go, go, to go back to a kind of teenage. I, I, ideal um, rock had grown up. It had Tommy and Pink Floyd and uh, Sergeant Peppers, um, and if it was to mean anything again, it had to go back and reclaim that that um, that that primal energy. And um, but of course, in '65, say for example, um, that history was very short. But by the time you get to you know, seventy-two. It's quite a long way, <laughs> relatively in pop music yeah. terms. It's quite a long history. There's, you know, and you start to get to see all of these reissue albums. You know, um, looking back into the history of, of rock music, and um, so there's that sense that you know you've got to get away from the history, but to get away from it, you also have to go back into the history. It's kind of is an interesting kind of play out, contradictory play out going on there. I think. Yeah, you, you, in the book you talk about the influence of the 1950s on the 1970s. Yeah. And, you know, that was, that's really interesting. I mean, how would you explain that? Was that sort of a rejection of, the, you know, the 60s sort of hippie mentality and, and kind of a return of the roots? Or was it nostalgia? Was it kind of anti-intellectualism? Or what, what was it? All, all, of, all of those things. And it was also about style as well, about reclaiming a kind of style. So I mean, the first chapter in the book and, um, is about Mick Farron. And to me, he kind of represents that coming out of the 60s, um, still being caught up in the values, if you like, and the politics of the, of, of the underground, but wanting to bring some kind of um, you know, flash and uh, um, power into into the whole thing. And what do you what are you going to draw upon? Are you going to draw upon those kind of shapes and moves and poses that were made by the people that you grew up on? So you know, he looks back to you know to um, Ed, Eddie Cochran, Elvis, and Chuck Berry, and so on and forth, uh, and of course Gene Vincent above all else. Yeah. So it's so for him, it's 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 about reclaiming a way of kind of presenting yourself to the world. Um, um, but 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 more widely, there's that kind of sense that um, the, the the 50s still have something new to offer, um, uh, uh, something that's worth reclaiming after the kind of 
order the turmoil of the 1960s. So yeah, so it is nostalgia, but also it's, it's about pulling from the past like Roxy Music did and pushing it into the future. So they're kind of, you know, <laughs> future past. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Roxy Music did it so well. I mean, you know, I think of a lot of those sort of glitter glam bands and, and a lot of them had that 50s style, but it was kind of kind of kitschy, you know, like mud or, you know, the Rubettes or something. But then you had Roxy Music and they sort of were futuristic and nostalgic at the same time. They sort of had that 50s kind of a look, but but in a sort of mutant kind of a way. <laughs> yeah, mutant's a good word for it, I think. <laughs> But, uh, you know, now, now we're talking about it, I mean, I guess it, the main subjects of um, 1972 pinups, they were all figures who had got their start in the 60s and maybe not made it then. You know, you've got McFarren, Mark Boland, Iggy, Lou Reed, David Bowie. It, maybe, you know, we could probably strike Roxy Music and New York Dolls, but the, those, all those ones I just mentioned, they were all people that came of age in the 60s and have been making music since the 60s. But now is their chance to grab at, at it. And, and Alice Cooper too. Yeah, and I think, they, I mean, they all were very good at wiping out their own past, you know. <laughs> of course, it all catches up with them eventually as people start to dig around and, you know, f you know find those kind of um, pre-T-Rex singles, you know, and um, John's Children or, or you know, ba Bowie's kind of attempts at aping the who or, or what have you. Oh yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, Bowie was my hero, and you know, I thought I knew him as you know Gene Genie and Starman and John. I'm only dancing, and then suddenly, uh, you know, Darum reissued the Laughing Gnome, you know, and, and it was so confusing to me as a, you know, I don't know, I was 11 years old or 12 years old. Like, how does this fit in? You know? <laughs> And of course it doesn't, you know, but but somehow it just adds to the whole kind of mad carnivalesque <laughs> feeling of that moment in time, you know, where, where you know, past and future seem to be colliding all, all of the time, you know, and it's what you made of it, what you did with it. Yeah, and then especially someone like Bowie who, you know, he was theatrical and, you know, reinventing new versions of himself, so... You know, he'd put aside the, you know, the, he'd had his mod period and his Tony Newley period and his sort of hippie Dylan period, and and, and then he was Ziggy. You know, uh, yeah, the yeah. Laughing Gnome was uh, that was kind of released out of sequence, at least how I experienced it. Oh, most definitely, yeah. For, I think for, for just about everybody. I mean, it was a <laughs> who bought that record when it first came out, you know. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, and I, I just do think, I mean, the. You know, Bowie just personifies that sense of things changing so rapidly. So, I mean, one of the things they're trying to put together a kind of timeline, and I was thinking about when Hunky Dory got released, and it's just right, it's right, in the, right at the end of, um, it's in December 71, or right right at the end of it. So he's, he's barely promoted that album before he's turned himself <laughs> by February. <laughs> 72 into Ziggy and you think I don't know this is a really brilliant album and you're not going to go out and just plug it for a year <laughs> you're already moving he's already he's not even when he's doing his interviews he's not playing people tracks from Hunky Dory he's playing, <laughs> he's playing his demos from Ziggy Stardust you know he's already got half of them tracks you know in the can and, and he's and he's out and you know you know he's out of the traps and running 
and just watching him go in those first six months of 1972 is just stunning. <laughs> he left everyone in the dust, and then by seventy, you know, I don't know what month it was in '73. Then he was he was done with Ziggy, and he was retiring from playing live altogether, supposedly. Yeah, yeah, which was a great, you know, it's a great marketing move because I can remember he put every single other album of his back up into the charts. <laughs> so <laughs> it was unbelievably, you know, smart, you know. But then he'd come through. And he'd, you know, and observed what was going on in the, in the 60s with all of the different, um, you know, managers, all of the people that had, you know, you know, that were really Kit Lambert and uh, uh, Andrew Luke Oldham. You know, he, 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 could see, he could see what was going on with these people, you know, Simon Napier-Bell. Um, you know, he, he learned from them and he, he, he was a really good um, translator of their ideas, you know, remaking them as new, but they would, they, but the more you look at it, the more they, you know, they're kind of second hand, but he, he just was really great at replaying that, that, those cards that he was given. Yeah. I think he had such taste in, in recognizing what the best music was and what the most innovative music was, and then just taking it and using it, you know, what, you know, whether from like, Definitely, Phil May from The Pretty Things was a big hero for him as far mm. as an androgynous kind of lead singer thing. And then, yeah. obviously, you know, he heard the Velvet Underground. He took a lot from Lou Reed, yeah. Iggy, you know, and very smart guy. Yeah, this, this ability to, yeah, I mean, he has, you know, superb taste and, and, and his ability to see just what was going to come around the corner before most other people saw it. So, that he, you know, he could pick up on the New York Dolls really, really quickly and then translate that into, you know, his kind of cover of um, the Rolling Stones, Let's Spend the Night Together, which is just New York Dolls. <laughs> 100% New York Dolls, not David Bowie's, the New York Dolls. He just, just ripped them off, you know, but he got out there first, you know, and had a, you know, better production than they ever had, you know, so... <laughs> I mean, it's probably a good time to talk about the Pinups album. Obviously, Pinups is the yeah. title of the book. So, I mean, what do you think? Like at the time, obviously, that was sort of seen as as kind of a stopgap album. You know, it didn't have any original songs on it. You know, and the Spiders broken up, uh, and it was really not looked upon really well. But it, you know, subsequently, we realized that it actually was quite significant, right? Well, I, I think so, and you know, it's, it's the, the, the one one record that I spend a lot of time talking about, um, really digging into. Um, mostly, I just let the kind of the voices of nineteen, you know, nineteen seventy two, seventy three speak speak for themselves um, through through you know why they were presented in the, in the in the music press and elsewhere. But that album, I wanted to spend a little time um, unpicking because. Um, because I think it is m much more significant than people make out, and it, it, it to me it's it, it kind of symbolises that play between the, the the past and the present, and, and the need to, to to use that in order to to go into the future. So, um, you know, he'd obviously been listening, you know, he'd watched the, the New York Dolls, listening to what they were doing and their attempt to kind of reinvigorate um, rock and roll to bring back a kind of youthful um, panache to what was going on to. To make, I think I put it in the book, make 21, 29 year olds think that they were 21 again. 
and uh, which I, I love that you know being in my 60s now and you know, thinking about you know 29s you know you're feeling old you can't get out on the dance floor anymore but you know the new york dolls can make it make make you make you feel that way it's quite interesting how the 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 people that first wrote about the new york dolls were all in that kind of late 20s you know they're all looking for <laughs> for their lost youth <laughs> anyway so 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 he's doing something else here but he's like he's you know, this is all the bands, you know, that he he that he covers are the ones that he he was a you know was a contemporary of. You know, he he would support the Who, or he supported them once. You know, but if you look at uh, who he's playing alongside at the Marquee and in his various bands, you know, it's all of the people that would appear on on pinups. So I, w I wanted to know what he was, you know, what he was about, what he was doing here, and I think it's a cover. So he's, it's clearly a homage. Um, but it's more than that in the sense that he's not talking to Charles Shaw Murray and he's not talking to Nick Kent. He's talking uh, to you, Mike, and he's, uh, uh, you know, as a 14 year old and to me as a 16 year old. And um, and I'm going to rewrite, rework, revamp uh, and recreate uh, this music of the, that's only just gone past. And to me, when I heard that, album, I just thought it was one of the most exciting records that had ever been made. I hadn't clue who the Yardbirds or the Pretty Things were, uh, Pink Floyd. But when I heard Rosalind, I just thought, that's incredible. I've got to find out where that comes from, you know. To me, that's one of the most formative records in my kind of musical taste. And um, to think, simply just kind of dismiss it as just a kind of throw away, make weight, uh, just a kind of something to chuck out into the market, I think misses the point about what he was trying to do with it, which was to speak to his audience, which were, you know, 14, 15, 16 year olds. Yeah, I think I was 11 or 12 when that came out. And yeah. Obviously, I'd missed all that stuff, you know, the first time. So he was sort of saying, this is what you missed. You know, go, you know, this is what the message I got. <laughs> go check this out. You missed out. It was really great. You know, in the liner notes, he mentions the Marquee Club and all that. And, and you know, and I did. That's exactly what I did. I went out and found the Pretty Things records. And, yeah. you know, obviously that had a huge impact on me. So yeah. thank you, David Bowie, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, and I also think it's just not, and, you know, so he's mythologizing his own past. And, you know, in the same way that, you know, McFarren was mythologizing the 1950s and, and, and Gene Vincent. And because he did it, because nobody else has done it quite like he did it. You know, everyone else was like, you know, doing cover versions of rock, old rock and roll numbers, you know. And, and but he, he did, the, and of course, the, the, the press also grew up on all those they went to see those bands they stood next to him you know watching pink floyd and uh, the marquee and and and, um, and the who on a tuesday night um and so they felt it was like disrespectful <laughs> but that's to me that's the whole point of it you know you can't be respectful about that kind of music you know being respectful about don't bring me down and rosalind that's just that's the opposite of what needs to be done, you know. <laughs> you have to smash it up a bit, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and he didn't try to do, a, you know, an authentic recreation of it. He he did a 1973 version of all those things. Yeah, when he does, I can't explain. It's like it's like being hit by Mogadon, isn't it? Like, you know, it's not. There's no amphetamine in that song at all. 
it's brilliant. <laughs> Again, you know, you know, find find a different way of you know doing the thing that you really want to do, and that's what third generation rock and roll was all about. I think you know, Alice Cooper's you know first few albums are just stunningly good rock and roll records. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. We'll be right back. Let's talk a little bit more about Mick Farron because first, you know, I love Mick. He was a friend of mine, and, and what a great guy! And he didn't—he was—he was never a guy who had any hit records or sold records in any significant amount. But he was a tastemaker, uh, and he—and and it was his writing really that sort of uh, helped define that whole era, really. And going back to the '60s and International Times days, and all the way through to the beginnings of punk and everything. So. Um, you know, tell me, tell me what it is about Mick that you felt the need to include him, you know, in such a big way in your book. Yeah, um, um, I, I, I think the chapter works. I think it holds holds together partly because, if you like, he's the kind of bridge between um, the kind of more raucous end of rock and roll and the more kind of cerebral um, stuff that was going on around, you know, the move into progressive rock. Um, and then he makes a kind of good contrast, I think, too, with um, uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex. And, um, you know, so he's the kind of noisy geezer at the, you know, on the street corner on a soapbox shouting at the world where <laughs> Mark Bowden's sitting in the coffee bar across the way, you know, <laughs> wishing he'd go away so people can better hear his, his little tunes about wizards. And um, so it seemed to me there was a kind of like, a story that needed to be told about the underground, not as a kind of homogenous uh, whole, but as uh, some sort of competing stories that wanted to be told about what popular music could be at that particular moment in in time. And um, and I think so. Uh, really, kind of crucial was the idea that of, of you know, rock and roll was politics, and politics was rock and roll for Mick, Mick Farron. And he felt that you could remake. The every you know you may not be able to remake the world you may not be able to bring down governments but you could remake the everyday you could make the everyday marvelous make it special make it different you know by being in that moment by you know putting on those two belt cross belts that he wore you know shagging out his hair you know and wearing a yellow ben sherman shirt you know and just screaming into a microphone because he couldn't sing <laughs> <laughs> and he'd be the first to tell you that, yeah. I mean, I, I, I never met, I've never met him, but he used to cross, he used to cross your path literally in, in gigs. In, at the, uh, I remember at uh, the Ramones at the Roundhouse. He, he just seemed to shift in front of me. I couldn't see the stage through the hair, you know. And then he did exactly the same thing at um, uh, first gig pop gig at the um, at Friars in Aylesbury. He, <laughs> he was a big guy, and that hair made him you know, very big. <laughs> 
so he kind of like you know he was just like this kind of he really was a presence somebody you took notice of and um so yeah so i i, I wanted to kind of follow through what his kind of politicization of rock and roll and, and that kind of um george melly idea of revolting to style that he can i i think personified as well as anybody did and i you know so and i think he just had great things to say and then as you kind of like you know getting involved you know with the deviants and then the pink pink fairies and then the, the, the kind of story of third world war as a kind of counter if you like a more kind of aggressive kind of working class proletariat set of politics um and how he kind of was negotiating all of that and at the same time being a kind of conduit for the mc5 and um and the stooges and it's kind of interesting when you go back and start to look and he wasn't um his, his, his uh, liking of those bands was quite qualified. He was he was he didn't write particularly positive reviews of the MC5 or or the Stooges. They weren't quite what he was looking for. I'm not really sure what he was looking for, but he, yeah, you know, it's only later that he comes round to you know th figuring out that you know Detroit is where it's at, you know. Yeah. And then of course the they, they you know you get I, there was a part that I wanted to go into but never got round couldn't couldn't make it fit was a it wasn't just that the uh, Lou Reed and um, Iggy Pop were, had come over in 1972 to Britain, but also the MC5 and uh, the and 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 the Flaming Groovies, you know. So later on, the New York Dolls made a brief appearance, but in in that year. But um, but I, I just think there was kind of like you know things were happening in London. London was like you know the attraction, and Mick Farron, I he just seems to me to be just such a great tour guide of London in in the, the late 60s early early 70s he just seems to be everywhere involved in everything you know yeah i think he was he really believed in the potential of rock and roll to sort of change the world and you know harness rebellion against the establishment he really believed in that and he did everything he could to enable it yeah um, yeah so he championed those bands and he sort of advocated that approach and called anyone out who was sort of not going in that, in, in you know, in his, uh, you know, rock and roll rebellion as, as Mick Farron saw it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was, I mean, the, the, the other great thing about him, because he was, you know, so vocal in what he stood for, he was a very easy target. So there's a, there's a lovely quote in the book from Charles Shermurray, who's, who's um, reviewing it, Watch Out Kids, the, um, um, Farron's um kind of i suppose manifesto really yeah. our rock and roll and he says it reads like a, a series of political um, buttons badges but but live to length you know like kind of yeah right he is you know they're just position statements you know <laughs> they're not thought through intellectual yeah. and he was aiming it at teenagers yeah. you know naive teenage rebels you know like like me that's right that's right yeah you got to grab onto that and then there was someone else i can't remember who it was now <laughs> You know, once you've been a one, once you played one rock and roll gig, where do you go next? The next rock and roll gig, you know. You, I mean, because you know the, the the kind of limits on Farron's view of the world were obvious to anybody that wanted to spend time thinking about it, and they were very obvious to him. But they were about a kind of engagement with the world that I think you know is is as relevant politically as any other uh, yeah. form of engagement. I just I just think he got it. I think he was right. He may have got it wrong quite a few times, but I think. What he had to say about rock and roll was right. So he becomes a really great, uh, I, th I think, kind of mediator about what rock and roll should be, and 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 I think, in 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 a sense, sets out uh, the groundwork for what third generation rock and roll would be. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I remember one thing he said to me was, you know, I was asking about being documenting the very beginnings of punk rock, and he said, you know, let me tell you a secret. It was exactly the same as with the hippies. There was only about a hundred of us, but with if you move, if we moved around quickly enough, it made it look like there was more. You know, <laughs> yeah. and I think he understood it was kind of a sleight of hand, and and that's why punk seemed to happen overnight because they built it up as like this is what's happening and and really it was a self-fulfilling prophecy because people thought it was happening and you know all these sort of bands like the vibrators and the stranglers kind of cut their hair and and adopted a new approach because this seemed to be you know what was in the wind you know yeah yeah but you can see that it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what kind of phase you're looking at i was just looking at the um who was playing at the kind of first uh, freak uh, freak outs and uh, uh, human beings and happenings in in um, London in uh, late '66, uh, uh, early '67? And once you've kind of e- exhausted the um, Pink Floyd and uh, the Move as kind of exemplars of what the British pop press thought was um, psychedelic, you suddenly cut get start getting all of these old hands coming up and we were filling out the bills. I mean, they're only old hands in terms of two or three years back, but they clearly belong to an earlier period of British popular popular music. But they've been yeah, yeah, like Zoot Zoot Money and people like that. Absolutely, Graham, you know Graham Bond, Alexis Corner. They're all they're all being dragged (laughs) out to play at the fourteenth hour Technicolor Dream. You know, it's like hold on a minute. (laughs) This could be they could have all they've all you know three years ago they were all playing at the Crawdaddy Club in Richmond. You know. (laughs) <laughs> so I, you know, so punk was very much like that, you know, with the Hammersmith Gorillas and and the, the Stranglers. Uh, you know, they all, <laughs> a lot of those bands had very long histories. You know, which <laughs> you don't, you don't, you know, you 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 only get to kind of figure out what the history of um, a band like the Adverts was kind of like twenty years after the fact when it's you know someone's someone's found tapes of the kind of TV Smiths, <laughs> yeah, right, demos. <laughs> Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, it, it, it was that year zero thing. Like uh, those bands seemed to emerge like fully formed, but really, you know, they had been you know around in some form. Many of them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I reckon something. You know, it's not probably like ninety percent of them were doing Doctor Phil good covers, <laughs> just you know, like radiators from space, <laughs> just like. All right, we'll just we'll sing about saying it all summer and <laughs> going back home or something. <laughs> we'll see. We'll, you know, sing about television detectives. But you, you know, you know what I mean. It's, it's that kind of like you can just kind of rejig everything very quickly if you if you if you, if you suss to what's going on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was all about you know marketing it in the moment and not you know you didn't have to give your resume. You know, you just made a single and you know had your photo in the NME and and that was who you are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can, I can remember being unbelievably disappointed with things like uh, live at CBGB's, you know. I wanted it to be filled with Ramones-like bands, and it was <laughs> seemed to me really dreadful, <laughs> dreary American yeah, t- Let's talk a bit about it, because you were around in London during the beginnings of, of the punk thing, right? And then you also went to New York. So, you know, talk about your own experiences during that period. Um. Well, I mean, I, I suppose... Uh, I suppose, you know, the, the the thing about, you know, growing up in, in a new town, I grew up in Hemel Hempstead, it's a new town, you know, it's green and, you know, very pleasant, it's filled with young people, just like, if you look at any of the kind of documentaries of 
the new towns that you can find on on YouTube, Stevenage or you know um, Bracknell. Um, it's they just overflowing with kids, baby boom kids, uh, and that was the kind of the, the, the my my kind of uh, immediate kind of context. And for the most part, you know, football was the dominant cultural activity. That's what we all did. But as I, as I got a bit older, you know, I became I moved away from football and, and towards music, and music became the means by which I found my identity. And um, and I went to see all of the big bands, you know, the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, uh, the Who, and all in these kind of horrible, cavernous places, Wembley or or Earl's Court. I mean, seriously, I mean, if anything was should, should have put me off rock music for the rest of my life, it was those kind of gigs, particularly the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin. They were just, it's not, um, it's not rewriting history. They were just incredibly bad. <laughs> the acoustics was awful in those places. Yeah, I think I remember reading something about the, you know, members of the Damned were at that Earl's Court show in, 76 and they were i don't think they'd formed the damned yet but that but something about that was kind of the final impetus like yeah the stones have lost it you know we need to you know we need need new bands yeah yeah i mean they had a a circular stage with the kind of inflatable phallus you know and 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 you know we were at the back of the back of the stage so the sound went all the way to the other end of the hall and then back before it got to us we hadn't got a clue what they were playing until it finished And then, um, so, so then, you know, discovering things like, you know, I'd always been someone like a big fan of uh, Sensational Alex Harvey band, and uh, discovering uh, Dr. Feelgood from '75 was just a, just a major game changer for me. You saw that live at, with Wilco. With Wilco, yeah, several times. They, they, they were always, you know, um, Hemel had this uh, Hemel Hempstead Pavilion. Nearly everybody played there eventually. You know, it was a kind of mid-site, you know, 2,000 people or something like that, standing. It was just, you know, just outside of London. So everybody came there to uh, to, to warm up for their, you know, uh, festival uh, gigs and stuff like that. Peter Frampton, Eric Clapton, um, Leonard Skinner in there. They, they were amazing. Um, and Dr. Vilga played there at least three times with, with, with Wilco, not four. Um, and yeah, just, they were incredible. And then just like became a total fan. And then because I was a fan of them, I, I, I um, read about Eddie and the Hot Rods and bought their first single, Writing on the Wall. And then it became a kind of mission to go and see them. I think I made two, didn't really know the small, I, mean, I knew Hammersmith Odeon and the Rainbow and all of those kind of places, but I didn't really know the small, I hadn't been to the marquee or anything like that. And this is um, 17, 18. And so I had this mission to go and see Eddie and the Hot Rods. Twice I tried to go and see them, and <laughs> ended up in the wrong parts of London both times. Anyway, they eventually got to see them at a, a college gig, and, uh, and they were just amazing. I mean, I just looked at them, they just looked like me. <laughs> exactly, exactly like me. Just so much energy. I mean, like, and again, you know, these weren't... They, they played these songs as if they owned them and, and, and they were new. Um, and um, to me, they were new and they did own them. You know, I'd not heard the original 96 Tears and, or, you know, not heard Get Out of Denver. Kids yeah. were all right. Yeah, I'd heard that one. But, you know, but mostly, the, you know, their covers were, you know, just 
<laughs> I thought they wrote them all. I thought they were just genius songwriters, you know. Because <laughs> you quickly learn, you know, the papers, once the papers get hold of it, they tell you, you know, it's all, you know, secondhand. But it didn't feel secondhand. So with the, the whole rods, it was, you know, finally, they, they were my means to go and, you know, discovering places like um, uh, the Marquis, obviously, but, uh, you know, the Hope and Anchor, uh, the National Rooms in particular, the, the Red Cow, those kind of places where eventually we get to see most of the bands on the on, on the scene, you know. There's something about I wrote about in um, The Who, that, uh, in my book on The Who, that Pete Townsend talks about how um, uh, when they first started playing, the band first started playing, the audience gave them permission to play, right? That they, the audience hadn't turned up to see The Who or the high numbers. They, you know, they turned up because they were just, it was that's where they went and they allowed The Who to play. And that was what, like, punk was very much uh, 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 about. You, you know, the bands turned up to, to entertain you. You didn't know much about them. You know, you weren't there to, you know, uh, bow down before them. They were just like you. And um, so that gap between the, the performer and the audience that kind of invisible wall was completely broken and that you know that's what you, you realize when you looked back at the led zeppelin at, um and the rolling stones at earl's court was you know there was a massive glass wall between you and them you know which you would never cross but go and see the damned <laughs> they couldn't stay on the stage you know <laughs> just it, it always just you know the collapsing of all of these um traditional boundaries about performer and, and, and audience just, just went, you know, I think that was, I think that more than anything, that was that, just that sense. Yeah. One aspect of your Who book that I found especially fascinating was how you explained their relationship with their fans. It was different from other bands, wasn't it? I mean, as you said earlier, Pete was very much trying to understand the kind of people who followed the Who, and he wanted to give them a voice and project their dreams and their view of life with his songs. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that makes him probably you know unique is that that, that he was always focusing on who his audience was how he was going to speak to them and how that audience was speaking speaking to him. And I think the, the, the great problem for him became when the gap between um, between the audience and, and the Who just got so large because they became so popular. And he, he knew, so he had to try to figure out ways of um, crossing that divide again. And sometimes he was successful and, uh, and other times he was he just failed you know, quite miserably sometimes. But most, you know, but at least he tried, you know, and others just gave up, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he he was you know he was an he was an artist and a musician, and he got loftier ambitions, and so he was going to some way go over the heads of his fans, but he couldn't dumb it down, so to speak. You know, he had to keep aspiring for something bigger. You know, and and maybe maybe sometimes he overreached. You know, but and lost them. You know, but I think he tried to reconnect when he did something like Quadrophenia, at least with the subject matter, even if the musically it was more complex. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he also had, you know, because he had the, the other three characters around him that he could, you know, he had, they, they anchored him because, you know, as much as he was an intellectual, they, they were, like, you know, dying in the wall, uh, yeah. anti intellectuals, you know. They were anything but. Anything but. 
<laughs> but they allowed him. I mean, in a sense, they were an audience too. They allowed him to be who he was, to say those things, because they recognised without him and without the ideas, there'd just be another run-of-the-mill band. And they seriously would have been, you know. I think, you know, that it was the four, the four parts coming together that made them so special. Um, but clearly without... Pete Townsend, you know, he's kind of intellectualising, he's kind of theorising about the band, um, and which just went on and on and on. He was just, he's the band's best critic. There is no doubt about it. Uh, but, as, but as you say, he keeps coming back to, you know, what's my relationship with the audience? What's the artist's relationship with the audience? And what happens when, you know, that, that gap gets so great uh, that it can't be crossed? And yeah, and, and Crodge Finia does really does attempt in the same way you know it's interesting because it comes out when pinups comes out and it's pulling back into the same moment because the rock and roll revival thing has been kind of corrupted by glam if you like i mean you know it's been popularized um to the extent that you know we'll, we'll, we'll have musicals like um you know um greece and things and so those kind of like the the teddy boys have, have found themselves being appropriated left right and center and they'll have to go off and reinvent themselves as rockabillies because, you know, otherwise they look like um, mud or shawaddy waddy. But um, and he's, you know, Townsend's looking at looking at the scene. And he's saying, you know, I need to go back to this, like Bowie did, you know, go back to this prime, well, same time as Bowie was doing it, go back to this primal moment, this moment when music was young and hot and, you know, and so he chooses the moment that he was kind of birthed in, if you like, which was the, the modern movement. And I think the, the story that he tells is, is fantastic. I, I, I find the whole album so elongated, you know, and the opening, uh, the, the, the opening parts of Quadrophenia just, you know, so pretentious. And it's kind of set up, you know. It's it's it's, it's a it's a hard one to move through. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I never listen to it. <laughs> no, it's a really hard one to move through these days. And, I don't uh, even I don't even own a copy of Quadrophenia. <laughs> do you know? <laughs> but I think well, it was an know. important album for them, you know. And 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 yeah, you know that probably helped give the Who the longevity that they had. Yeah, I do, I do think, I mean, you know, he, he had to find a way of, kind of, you know, where'd you go after Tommy? That was his problem, you know, and Tommy was always about the audience and the relationship with the audience and, and that sense that um, that it was always going to end in a kind of disaster. And, and he, you know, then spent the rest of his time trying to trying to manage that sense of catastrophe that was just around the corner for him. But, um, and, 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 and I, I, you know, in hindsight, I think Quadrophenia was a, was a was a good move, but it's it's a, it's a it's a for me a tough listen. Great great sleeve though. Yeah, <laughs> there's no hits on that album, you know. <laughs> this is very odd. you know the the punk and the Godfather. Don't you like that? No, it's not really a hit, is it? <laughs> it's a statement. <laughs> yeah, no. I can't. <laughs> yeah, well, you see, the truth be told, the Who were the greatest singles band. You know, that's that's their, their run of singles up until. Uh, I can see for miles is just I don't think anyone else comes close to it. So. I don't mind the guys dancing with my girl. That's fine. I know I'm all pretty well, but I know sometimes I must get. So yeah, let's 
let's talk about a little bit more about the book, The Who, a band with built-in hate. Tell you know, t- tell us about the title. Where is it? Where's that coming from? <laughs> it's me. It's, where's a provocation, isn't it? <laughs> I'm fed up with polite books <laughs> about rock bands that I love, which are impolite and vulgar and rude and crude and loud and leery uh, and lascivious and. Uh, all the other really good things. So it's a provocation, but it's a provocation that's gifted to me by Pete Townsend. Right the way through the 60s, he's talking about everything, and, and, and the rest of the band are too, if you look at the um, their, their, their uh, pieces in the pop press, you know, they, they, they're always talking about what they hate, and he hates everything. <laughs> it's just an absolutely brilliant position to be in. Everybody else is trying to be really nice, and the Who are just not. <laughs> They're going to be unnice. And so, yeah, so the, a band with Built in Hate, I know it's really upset, particularly people in, a, in um, Who fans in America. It's not how they want to see them, and they, they, they you know, they, 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 it's a nostalgia act for them. Um, but I don't think the Who are a nostalgia act. I think they should, they're best remembered as, you know, as as a kind of seditious force that's going to kind of, you know, they meant quite a lot to Mick Farron, I think. He went to see them at the Marquee on, you know, Tuesday nights. And um, so when they stopped being that kind of seditious, that, for, you know, that seditious force, um, he you know, he had real problems and confronted Townsend drunkenly at some garden party for the... Um, uh, for the promotion of, I think it was Who's Next. Right, and that's that, yeah, that's that long letter, right, that, that Pete wrote to Mick. Yeah, yeah. So they wrote letters to each other through the press, you know, and they're, they're, but, and, and I think Townsend's response is absolutely brilliant, you know. He did, but Farron is, you know, he's, he's, he's that voice of discontent, you know, and he wants the Who to, to be his echo. And, um, they, you know, as they kind of move into becoming millionaires, they just they can't do it. So a band with Bill and Hayes to kind of reclaim the Who really as 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 on um, provocateurs, you know, within the pop scene to say, you know, these are not a co- this is not a cosy nostalgia act, you know, with um, Targets and Lambrettas and you know um, Parkers and you know whatever's being sold at the merchandising store at the whatever gigs that they they play today, but to say, you know, this is a band that. Uh, laid the groundwork for all the bands that you think are just the best <laughs> you know whether that's the clash or the sex yeah. pistols or, or or whatever comes afterwards for you you know i don't you know that the, the who are the bedrock for me or the, or, of those bands that set themselves up as provocateurs so yeah hate is a good one and they certainly, and, they, and, and a lot of the interviews too, you know, they talk about it. They didn't really like each other a lot of the time. The band <laughs> members themselves uh, were often fighting, you know. Yeah. Yeah, they turn in on each other all of the time, you know. How they ever held it together to have a career is just in, it's, 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 it's incredible. And um, um, but that energy, but they were able to kind of you know filter that energy to you know to, to push it through the engine and, and, and you know really roar off down the track. But then they were fueled on eight. You know, it's, it's a good emotion <laughs> if you want to be in a rock and roll band. You know, it's a it could be very powerful, especially when you're young. Yes, yeah, yeah, and it is about that kind of adolescence, you know. And and so one of the things that Townsend talks about again and again and again is is. You know, when you, when with my generation, I hope I die before I get old. It's not old old in terms of age. It's it's he doesn't want to be the young married couple that settled down 
and conforming. He wants to hold on to that idea of youthful rebellion. He wants to be a delinquent. But what makes him more than yeah. just a delinquent is that, you know, he's also somebody able to intellectualise it. And, he, in, in, and in that sense, he finds the kind of tools and the means to, uh, uh, to project that, that delinquency, you know, that he, he understands that, you know, pop music, can be an art form and um you know but it still needs to remain pop if it's to have any kind of uh you know force any 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 um impact otherwise it's you know it's it's not rock and roll yeah i think that's why roger daltrey was a great tool for him to and maybe not a tool to the right word but you know he was a great vessel for him to put that artistic you know they were artistic without coming across as art because he had this, you know, tough geezer from Shepherd's Bush as yeah. the mouthpiece speaking yes. his words, where if it would have been, you know, gangling big nose Pete Townsend up there singing, you know, yeah. the mod kids might not have wanted to listen. It would have come across as like some arty guy, some intellectual guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he always yeah, he always had the rest of the band as cover. He could always hide behind them. Um, but step, but but they gave him enough room for him to step out and to make these, uh, you know, de de declarations. And um, and I think, and you know, if he had Kip Lambert behind him, who was, you know, clearly, I mean, all I think all of the great bands have great managers behind them, or or, or you know, people who are able to kind of pass on ideas, you know. Absolutely. So what are you working on now? You're, you're working on a new book. Um, let's uh, talk about that. Yeah, so I've got like I've got a book on um, Hollywood movies uh, in the early 1970s coming out, which is kind of like a, a visual kind of parallel with that moment in third generation rock and roll, except, you know, from a Hollywood perspective, which is obviously not, not quite as provocative as... Um, what was going on in London at that particular time in music. But anyway, in film, it was really interesting. So that kind of moment where uh, Hollywood studios are going to um, give a lot of money to youngish filmmakers because um, Easy Rider and, and Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate have shown them that there's a, there's, a, there's a big market out there that can be exploited. And, and the filmmakers then kind of like channel, with, I think, uh, the, the kind of attitude and style of the Rolling Stones, or at least try to do that through their kind of, um, you know, Sam Peck and Paul Westerns and things. So, so that's that's that that's done, and that's coming out uh, this time. Will be out this time by this time next year. Waiting, waiting for that one to get kind of published. I, I started to work on this idea of um, uh, Greece and rock and roll. The kind of like the parallel stories of some of the bands that I really love, like the Flaming Groovies and the MC Five. Um, uh, that I didn't get to pick up on in, in, in pinups. So I wanted to go back and sort of think about that moment where kids kids are really kind of working on rock, rock and roll in a, in a way that uh, would, would leave that legacy for 1972. So the, so bands like The Pretty Things, The Yardbirds, uh, Downline and Sect, them. Um, the, so the idea was to go back and start to, to look at what the kind of, uh, coverage was of those bands and how they were talked about and um, how they uh, understood what rock and roll was all about and then how that would kind of get picked up on and, and carried through later on. 
But as I got into that, I, I started to realise there's a, there's a really big story here that I've kind of like felt like needed to be told. So I think the um, the greaser rock and roll of the 70s is going to have to have to wait around a bit. But um, so I, I've basically decided to work on a book on the using the Yardbirds as the kind of um, central uh, narrative, the story that uh, that got, runs through it. Um, as a, as a means to sort of talk about what was going on in um, 63, 64, 65, 66, 67, 68, and the huge, massive changes that were taking place in British music culture at that time, and then on into the kind of changes that were going on in, in, in the States, and how the Yardbirds kind of, um, at various points, lead... Uh, you know, at, at the forefront of of those kind of changes, but at another points kind of uh, um, uh, uh, lag behind, and um, so it's quite a, uh, a compacted story that I want to tell. It's only a, only across a, a kind of few years, but I I felt that um, uh, you know you could tell a, a, a different narrative, one that the, the the broad outlines are familiar to everybody, but the kind of complexities within it within that story. Um, perhaps are, are, are more intriguing, more interesting than people have perhaps considered so far. Oh, that sounds great. That sounds fascinating. So, yeah, so I want to, so, you know, when I get, you know, sort of Yardbirds is a kind of, as I say, this kind of like generational shift with, you know, 1963, 64 in, in Richmond, establishing rhythm and blues as as the fad i mean it's absolutely the fad in 1964 everybody's talking about it boyfriend magazine even gives away a, a free little uh, make uh, fold your own cut and fold your own um little magazine on who who are the bands to be looking out for on the, on the rhythm and blues scene in 64 everyone's talking about it then you get to the end of 64 and everyone wants to bail out of it. It's like it's overpopulated. It's too competitive, and so everyone's talking about you know well you know what's what's what what comes next, and and you know you get these kind of interesting kind of engagements between bands where they become quite um, competitive. So the the Who who kind of really obviously following quite closely the shirt tails of the Yardbirds. Uh, promote themselves as maximum rhythm and blues, which is, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's not that far away from the most blues wailing, is it? So, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's, but it kind of suggests an endpoint, and because we we have that image of the Who as maximum R&B because of the, the poster that got reprinted for, with the live at Leeds, so everybody knows it, so everyone thinks, all right, the Who, maximum R&B, but they dump it really, really, really quickly by um, as, as they go through the marquee Tuesday nights residency. By the time you get into nine, the early part of 1965, they're billing themselves as, as the Who, London 1965. And R&B has completely gone out the window. They're not playing R&B. Well, they are playing R&B, but the, the, the rhetoric around what they're doing is, has, has shifted, just as it does with the Yardbirds, who, you know, for your love and, and um, this kind of debate about... Um, Commercially, you know, the commercialization of, of, of what they're doing in towns, um, Clapton, uh, and dropping out because apparently, you know, he's a purist and, um, you know, doesn't want to be besmirched by um, uh, cheap, you know, com commerce, which is a kind of like really interesting story in, 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 in of itself. And I go into quite a lot of detail about just how that's played out and why it was that the Yardbirds were very happy to say he was a purist, he was authentic, he didn't want to be. 
um, dirtied by commercialism, but they did, you know. And then very quickly, of course, For Your Love is a big hit, big hit record. So they kind of, as far as they're concerned, they, they, they've made the right move. And Jeff Beck is, you know, taking them into places, uh, sonic places they've not been before. There's a whole new set of adventurism going on. And that's when you get this really interesting um, competition played out in the music press between The Who and The Yardbirds. And the Yardbirds suddenly get this reputation for always saying, we did it first, <laughs> right? And <laughs> the Who never say that. They never bother saying, we did it first. They just do it bigger and more boldly than anybody else, you know, make a bigger noise about it. And they've got Keith Moon as well, you know, so <laughs> they, people are paying attention. But they both bands, you know, they, they clearly, I mean, Jeff Beck always talks about how much he loves Pete Townsend's guitar and the Who, you know, his favourite favorite band. And um, but at the same time, you know, Keith Relf will be bad mouthing the Who, saying they just ripped us off, you know. <laughs> and Roger Daltrey will be saying really snarky little things about the Yardbirds, you know. <laughs> Who wants to listen to Gregorian charts? That's <laughs> just bollocks, that's, you know. <laughs> and so they you got this kind of like dialogue going on, which to me, I don't know, you, you might you know more than me, but I don't think people have talked about this dialogue before. So it kind of goes, you know, so you've got this kind of interesting kind of like competition between these two bands that tells you something about what's going on in the, uh, on the scene at that time. And then it, could, it fades out because the Who become quite big and, and really actually they're much more photogenic and much more interesting than the Yardbirds. Yardbirds have a real problem with their characters and their personalities and they decide well between when their management shifts you know and for both managers that they need to do something to make themselves a bit more interesting so they don't really quite know what to do so Keith Ralph's going to do a solo single which he does and eventually under Simon Napier Bell Jeff Beck's going to do one which would be Beck's Bolero but but gets left in the vaults until his solo career takes off and um the drummer uh, Jim McCarty and, and and the rhythm guitarist uh, uh, Chris Treasure are, are they're going to put out a comedy record, <laughs> and <laughs> Paul Samuel Smith uh, he's going to uh, you know he, he's going to do some folky folky number he likes folk, folk music, <laughs> so they've all got these ideas and the idea is not to fracture the band not to break the band up but to to, to give it more personality so that everybody recognises who they are. With, when Jeff Beck finally gets kicked out of the band because he stops turning up for gigs and things, he's, he's, very, he's very begrudgeful. And he says, well, I, I, you know, a couple of months ago, I was just looking through all of the, you know, all of the back issues of Beat Instrumental. And um, I know it's, it's only me and Keith Ralph that ever gets mentioned. Nobody ever mentions the others. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's really okay. grudgeful, but it's actually kind of true, you know. And so they, the, the Yardbirds need to kind of work on their personalities and who they are and how they market and sell themselves. And it's one of the things that holds them back, I think. And at that point, Clapton makes a return. And, and um, first with the, with, the, with, with the Blues Breakers, um, where he's able to kind of continue this idea of the kind of purist and um, someone um, unconcerned with material values. Um, and then splits from that and sets up Cream because he's not getting any money. <laughs> and um, next thing you know, there's it's Clapton, this blues purist, you know, appearing on stage in a kind of beautifully embroidered gold gold jacket, you know. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, with a perm. Yeah. yeah, and then releasing this, you know, wrapping paper. And what's it about? Oh, we just want to, you know, we want, we don't want to, you know, we, we, we want to get as big an audience as possible. You know, we, we, we thought we'd make a commercial record first and then do the stuff, you know, that we really want to do that's really us uh, later on, which is just, you know, for your love, rewritten. So these stories about the, the, the way that Yardbirds interact and, you know, kind of create a narrative, I think, across that kind of period of, of British, uh, British music making, I think, is really interesting. And, um, so that's what I'm working on. It's, it's, it's still in the early stages, but it's, uh, I'm, I'm having great times just digging around in the, in, in, in the library uh, and online finding stuff that's going to help me write this story. Yeah, can't wait to read it. It sounds like it's targeted specifically at me. <laughs> I'm, I'm well, writing the demographic well, for that book. <laughs> yeah, you will be the demographic for this one. <laughs> so there was... <laughs> I was always kind of like, you know, I know, looking back, and I know you said this, I think, about the downliner set, about the, 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 the second album, uh, the country set. And uh, uh, why they did it. And it was like, if you, if, you, if you look at the stories as they're told across that moment where R&B seems, seems to have become kind of overpopulated and um, it's just closing in on itself, if that's just at that point that the downliner set decided country music's the, <laughs> it's the route to go because they're the only one that thinks that you know <laughs> and that's their kind of kind of brilliance but it's that kind of sense of you know that well where do you go next what what, what you know what's what, what, you know what tools have you got to hand you know what's the yeah especially if you can't write your own songs you know it, yeah massive 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 issue yeah really big issue for for all, for all of these bands uh, for, you know find uh, you know finding material good material um, and um, yeah, so it's very much part of that kind of. It's not. A, it's not. It's quirky, but it, it, it makes sense, you know. If you if if you think, okay, so this this scene is played out. What do we do next, you know? And uh, and, and you think, well, that's a, that's a novelty. That was sell, you know. People took notes of it for a while. Of course, it didn't sell. So <laughs> they made a they, they made a really good third album. <laughs> Yeah, go back to what we do. But yeah, yeah I think yeah, the third yeah. one was supposed to be back to back to good old rock and roll. So it yeah. was almost like uh, anticipating the third generation rock and roll concept. Yeah, yeah, you can see it there. Yeah, just with the downliner saying it's, it's in those three albums, you get the whole of the history before it's even happened. <laughs> yeah, I like that one. <laughs> yeah, because there, there was a band that had no strong manager guiding them. You know, it was just. You know, they were basically managed by, you know, Don Crane's mum, you know. That's right. And, uh, That's right. Yeah. Following Don's, you know, perverse whims, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was, I mean, you know, the, not, yeah, I think, you know, they were, the rest of the band weren't too happy about doing a country album, but Don <laughs> thought it was hilarious that, <laughs> because it, because nobody else was doing it, so why not? <laughs> That's right. That's right. The Ugly Things Podcast was produced by James Archer and narrated by Mike Stacks. That's me. I've been publishing Ugly Things magazine now for 40 years, covering the best overlooked music of the 1960s and beyond. You can order the latest issue of the magazine at uglythings.com. That's ugly-things.com. Where you can also order back issues, vinyl, CDs and books, and read additional articles and reviews.
please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and tell your friends. We would also really appreciate it if you became a Patreon supporter. For a small monthly donation, Patreon members get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting bonus content. Your contribution will help us keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat garage and psychedelic music. I'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top Patreon supporters, Michael Barbara, Chip Lyon, Rob Brannigan, Stephen Schmidt, J. Paul Riga, and Leon Jones. Thank you, all of you, for your support. And thank you for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.